All right, if you like cheese puffs, raise your hand. Who likes cheese puffs? Carol needs some up front, Elsabeth. Oh, she already has some. Can your kids have cheese puffs? There's any allergic issues? They're good. Elsabeth? Elsabeth, there's a cheese puff request. Cheese puffs, Smith family, Lydia. Oh, you still have some. Wow, two helpings of cheese puffs for Lydia. Dang. All right, Smiths. All right, well, this morning, you guys can open your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to continue our trip through Genesis. In a moment, we are going to read together, starting in chapter 9, verse 18. And we're going to have three different people read to take us all the way through chapter 11, verse 9. Now, before we do that, I wanted to share a couple things. This morning is going to be a little uh, heavier on the equipping side. In other words, one of my, I don't know, maybe it's 50-50 preaching slash helping us when we approach God's word to know what to look for and more specifically to know when to stop reading and when do we need to continue reading so that we're not reading too far and missing the point or not reading enough and missing the point. Does that make sense? So we kind of did this last week. So I'm going to see if I can illustrate this. And this may be the worst thing I've ever done in my life. But I hope this is helpful. I have four objects here. I have a watermelon, a cheese puff, a balloon, and a volleyball. We're going to pretend for a moment, use your imagination, that these are passages of Scripture that you're working through. Okay, so these are sections of scripture, whether it's chapters or sections or something. And so you get to the first section, you start reading, and you find out that it's about watermelons. And you go, oh, it's about watermelons, huh, okay, this is, this is interesting, I guess God has things he wants to teach us about watermelons. You then move on to the next paragraph or the next chapter, and you realize it's all about cheese puffs. Like, oh wow, cheese puffs, all right, that, that, God has things to say about cheese puffs. But because you're smart, you go, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's related back to the last section because they're both food. And so you see, maybe there's a link here between the two. They're both nutritious foods for me. <laughs> then you get to the next section or the next chapter, and you find it's about balloons. And you go, oh, balloons. God wants something to say about balloons. And then you go, hey, wait a minute. I remember in the last chapter, it was about cheese puffs, and they're both Ah, so maybe God's trying to tell me something about things that are orange. So you work your way backwards again, and you go, well, it could be maybe. Don't they grow orange watermelon somewhere? And we start to try to, no, it doesn't, because they're not orange. Got it? So then you move on to the next chapter or the next section, and you find out it's about volleyballs. You go, oh, volleyballs, they bounce. And God has something to say about volleyballs. And then you realize, oh, the last chapter was about balloons, and they bounce too. And so you go, maybe cheese puffs bounce. Nope. Let's check at the watermelon. <laughs> nope, they don't bounce either. And so you wonder, maybe these two chapters are linked together, and maybe these two are, but you're not quite sure. And then you step back, and you look at all four of the sections, and you go, huh, they're all round. Maybe God has something he wants to teach us about things that are round. So the point of this is, to have your antennas up when you're reading God's word because you need to know as you're reading through, where does, where does a topic end? 
So I don't read too far and then maybe miss it, or I don't read far enough and then I take the one cheese puff story and make everything about cheese puffs, when really it's part of a bigger story. So this morning we're going to read a bigger chunk, more of a section, and at first reading you will do what I did and you'll say these do not fit together, but there is a thread. And I think they're meant to be read together and they're meant to be understood together. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things that are in each section that we can get from them, because there are. But I think we can miss something if we don't read them together and see the thread that ties them together. So we're going to have three readers. They're going to read through beginning in chapter 9, verse 18. Is that right? And I want you to look for the thread. What is the one thing that ties all of this together? And then from there, we're going to jump into the very first story this morning. We're not going to get through all of this today. I want to see the thread, and then we're going to handle the first story about Noah. Okay? So who's first? Renee? You're going to hold, right? Good. So Renee's going to start, and then we're going to work our way through this passage together. I'm so sorry. All right. Okay, Genesis 9, 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Genesis 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medei, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodinim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rayama, and Saptaka. The sons of Rayama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, sorry, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, 
Anamim, Lahimim, Nephutham, Pathrusim, Kalsum, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Avarites, the Zeramites, and the Hathites. Afterward, the clans of Canaan dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Laish, sorry, Laisha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Aparshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Aparshad, father of Shelah, Shelah the father, fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Elmodad, Sheleth, Hazar-Maveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzel, Dikla, Obel, Abiniel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha uh, in the direction of Shefer to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Well done, Mark. <laughs> Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Mark, thank you. (laughs) All right, so what did you notice? Did you notice what could be a possible thread that links it all together? Raise your hand if you think you know. If you're like, yep, I see the link. I see the thread. Are you scared to raise your hand? Or do you really not know? (laughs) I hope you're not scared because I'm not trying to make you scared. Let me show you what the thread is. Okay, here's what I think the thread is that connects all this together. I want you to look at chapter 9, verse 18. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were 
dispersed. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. From these, the coastlands of the peoples, what'd they do? They spread. Look at 10.11. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So he went into another land. Look at 10.18, very last sentence. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Look at verse 30. The territory in which they lived extended. Look at verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth from the flood. Look at 11.4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower, in which its tops reach to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be... Look at 8.4. I'm sorry, 11.4. Nope, 11.8. <laughs> My bad. What's 11.8 say? So, the Lord. And then look at the very last verse there. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. So what's going on? People are being spread out. People are dispersing. They're, they're, they're moving and they're taking over all the earth. I think this is what ties these sections together. It's this idea that people are expanding. They're going out into the earth. They're spreading all over the earth. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't individual things to learn from each one of these stories. But I think we'll miss things, especially when we get to the Tower of Babel, that we're supposed to see if we forget the point of all of these stories. The point of this being linked together is that people are being dispersed. People are spreading out. So if I had to put a summary sentence over this section that was just read this morning, I would say, these are the days when God spread or dispersed mankind throughout the earth. This is going on. He's spreading out people. And this is not the first time we've seen that, right? Because you guys know in Genesis 1, what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? And fill the earth, right? Go fill the earth. And we saw last week that even after the flood, God tells Noah to fill the earth in chapter 9, verse 1. So this is all about filling the earth. So we're not to be surprised. In fact, we could, and we will do it a little bit next week, trace this thread all the way through the Bible. That God's about spreading out his people. So this, I don't know if you think like I do. So I'm reading this this week and studying it, and I'm going, why? What difference does this make? Does God not like cities? Does God like the country? Does he, is he against overcrowding and he loves rural places, so he's trying to get everybody to spread out rather than build a city? Well, I read Genesis again, looking for an answer, and I found eh, nothing. And so when you can't find the answer to your question, what do you do? You Google it. No, you don't. Google it. What do you do? You keep reading, right, in rings from the question you have to see if there's an answer somewhere in Scripture. And a lot of times there's not. A lot of times we have questions and we're like, I have no idea. Don't know what the answer is. Other times we can find answers. So I think I found an answer, but I want you to be convinced that this is the right answer. Okay, so we're going to, actually I'm going to walk you through a verse in Acts. And I see enough similarities, but I want you to see if you see enough similarities between what we've been reading in Genesis and what was just read in Genesis and what we have here in Acts chapter 17. Okay, so here we go. See if you see the similarities that I see. The God who made the world. That sounds a little bit Genesis-like, don't you think? The God who made the world and everything 
in it. Does that sound like Genesis? Wow, nobody thinks it does. All right, just me. <laughs> Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men mankind life. We see that in Genesis, right? And he breathes into man and everything else. And he made from one man, sound Genesis-like, every nation of mankind. We're going to see next week that the passage that Mark read this morning, 70 nations come out of Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah. 70 nations, just before we get to the end of chapter 10. So every nation to live where? All over the face of the earth. Does it not sound familiar? So I'm, I'm, I'm doing the same thing you do. I'm just reading my Bible. I'm searching for places that I think might give me an answer to why is God so bent on making sure people spread out. So he's telling us here they're spreading out all the face of the earth. He's determined the allotted periods. So he decided when he was going to put people in a certain place and the boundaries of their dwelling. In other words, where he's going to put them. So he's deciding, I'm going to put these people here at this time, and then I'm going to put these other people here, maybe at a different time. So he's the one who's determining these things. He's allotted the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then, what does he say? Ah, he's going to tell us why. That. Here's his goal. Why is he spreading out people? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from any of us. Love that little last sentence. So why does God spread people out on the face of the earth, putting them in different places at different times? Well, he tells us that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So when you read Genesis and you get to all these weird, like, why is God spreading people out? What's the answer to the question? I think the answer to the question is God is doing it so that people will seek God, perhaps feel their way towards him, and eventually find him. That seems to be the goal. Now, you may be thinking, Matt, is that, Matt, that is just stupid. God does not need to put people in certain places at certain times to get their attention. And God doesn't have to spread people out to do that. That's ridiculous. God can do whatever he wants. That makes no sense. You're right. It doesn't make any sense to me at all either. But I didn't create people. And I didn't create the earth. And I'm not God. And you didn't create people. And you didn't create the earth. And you're not God. So even though we don't understand why, this still gives me an answer. God is doing it for some kind of purpose that we'll find out someday, greater than we understand, about how he created people, why he puts people where he puts them, for the purpose of having them seek him in hopes that they will find him. It's all part of God's master plan. And we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but God does. And that's pretty cool, because that means that you are here in 2021 in Mount Airy, Maryland, for the same reason. God put you here so that you would seek him and feel for him and find him. God had that in mind when he wrote Genesis, when he's spreading people out, and he had it in mind when he was writing what it says here in the book of Acts. So, you and I were created by God, uniquely suited for Mount Airy in 2021, whatever that means, so that you would encounter him. So now let's 
see this link. So there's the link. Everything's tied together by this idea that people are dispersing throughout the earth. We know that's a big picture thing, right? That's kind of what connects the ball, right? Everything's round. That's kind of, okay, everything's round. This is what God's doing. And then we get to this first story. Ah, yes. Drunk Noah naked in his tent. The heck do you do with this story? I probably read and studied this passage more than I have maybe any other passage that I've preached in a long time. And no one, to be honest, really knows why this is here. Everybody speculates. There's all kinds of things, theories, reasons why they think God included this story. I mean, think about it. Noah lives another 350 years after the flood, and this is the story of Noah we get? Certainly he must have done something else more noble, interesting, practical for us. Nope, not according to God. He put this one in here for a reason, and he wants us to try to faithfully figure it out. So let's walk through the story and let's see if we can figure it out together. So we're told that, very beginning, that all the people on the earth are going to be dispersed through these four men and their wives, and that all nations will come from them. And then the next thing you know, we find Noah planting a vineyard, growing grapes, which I understand takes four to five years, right, to plant a vineyard and actually harvest grapes in order to make wine to drink. So four or five years has gone by. Since he gets off the ark, he, builds this, he grows this vineyard, he makes grapes, he gets drunk. The next thing you know, he is naked and drunk in his tent. In verse 22, his son Ham sees him naked and then goes and tells his two brothers about it. Shem and Ham then grab a garment, they walk backwards towards their father, and they drop it over him, ensuring they don't see him. The next thing you know, Noah wakes up, he seems a little perturbed, prophetically announces over his uh, grandson, not even his son, that you're going to be cursed because of what your father did. And then he blesses God for what Shem and Japheth did to him. And then Noah dies. End of Noah. What a wacky way to end the life of Noah. When you read the whole Noah story, this is not what you're expecting, is it? Like, this isn't how it's supposed to end. Good grief, we've gotten all these chapters and all these details about poor Noah and his ark and the animals and all he put up with and 100 years of building an ark, and this is how it ends. Yep, for God, this is how it ends. This is what he wants us to see. So what do we do with this? You're reading this. What do we make of this story? So here we're getting a little equipping going on. We're asking questions of the text to figure it out. Do we spend 20 minutes talking about drunkenness? Is that the point of the story? Do not get drunk. Do we talk about Noah's sin of drunkenness and how it led to him being naked? One sin leads to another. Do we celebrate what Shem and Japheth did? Do we speculate over what really took place in that tent? Do we focus on how we should uh, not treat our fathers or how we should treat our fathers? Kids, listen up. This passage is about how you should treat your dads. Dads, this is a story for you so that you don't treat your dad the wrong way and then it, the repercussions land on your child, your son. Is that what this is about? Lots of places you can go. And believe me, I've heard all of these this week. I've read all of these this week. So let's consider a few of them. Let's enter with me a little bit here. Was it wrong for Noah to get drunk? depends on who you ask, right? It depends on who you ask. Uh, according to what we've read so far in God's word, has God said anything about Noah or anybody else and that they shouldn't get drunk? No. We don't have anything recorded in Bible about anybody getting drunk until you get to Solomon writing the Proverbs, and he says four things. Too good, it's for your, the joy of your soul, and too bad. Warn, warning, don't get drunk. 
But Noah doesn't have that. So is Noah wrong for getting drunk? From Noah's perspective, I don't know. I don't have any reason to think that he knew it was wrong. Was it wrong for Noah to be naked in his tent? Does God ever say, don't lie naked in your tent? I mean, he's not lying out in a field for crying out loud. He's in his tent. Maybe his only mistake was he didn't pull the zipper down. I don't know. <laughs> he's in his bedroom naked for crying out loud. So I'm not so sure the passage here is to be preached with, guys, avoid the sin of Noah. Don't get drunk because dumb things happen. You'll end up naked in a place you don't want to be. I don't think that's the point. I'm not convinced that this passage is here to mar Noah's character. I'm not convinced of that. Now, does this sort of mar Noah's character? Maybe. Especially since all we know about Noah is that he's a righteous man who always does everything God tells him to do. And walking with God, I mean, there's nothing about Noah that's been anything but above reproach and commendable. So is this meant to make us go, oh, there's Noah's downfall? I'm not sure. And some of the reasons I'm not sure is because God doesn't go down that road in the text. So what does this leave us with? Well, it leaves us with how God inspires Noah to respond to what the two sons do, or the three sons do. The three sons are going to do something, and then Noah is going to respond to those, or God is going to respond to those. So how do they respond? Well, how does Ham respond to dad being naked and drunk in his tent? Two key words. It says in verse 22 that he did two things, two actions, two verbs. What are they? Saw and told. Okay, so he saw his father, and then he told who? Hey, brothers. He told them. Now, some people jump down to verse 24, where Noah says, I know what my son had done to him. Or it says that Noah knew what his son had done to him, and they say, oh, he did something to him. See? But nothing in the text tells us anything else went on. So I'm guessing he's saying... What, he, what my son did to me was he saw and he told. So something about seeing and telling that seems to be important to this passage, perhaps. Noah responds to Ham seeing and telling by speaking prophetic words of curse on not Ham, but who? His son Canaan. Oh, there, there's questions. That ain't fair. So some speculate, well... Canaan was just basically a chip off the old block. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He was a rebel like his dad, and God knew it, so God cursed him. Is that in the text? That's not in the text either. So we don't know why he's skipping a generation. But there's a clue. Let me speculate for a moment with a, with a clue. If you go back to 9-1, who does God bless? Noah and his sons. So is it possible that God blessed Ham? Then Ham does something which obviously isn't good. But once God blesses, God doesn't curse. Now, we don't understand this, right? Because I'll say, hey, God bless you and walk away. In their culture and in Old Testament times, when you blessed someone or if God blessed someone, it was a really big deal. Like, significant things happened in people's lives when God said, you know, a blessing over someone, or, or someone, a dad prophetically blessed a son, or if someone cursed someone, like, you just don't do that. Like, serious stuff happens when that goes down, and so is it possible, maybe, that God had already blessed Ham, and now God is going to, through Noah, prophetically pronounce a cursing, and he's not going to curse someone he blessed, so he takes it down to the next generation, and you and I think, that's not fair. I'm not God. 
God's doing what God does. And I'm not going to try to argue or explain it away. God knows what he's doing in his sovereign plan. But there's something going on here with skipping a generation or skipping Ham. All right, now back to the story. So now we have Ham's, Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed for Ham seeing his father naked and telling him about it. And then it seems like we're supposed to compare. Do you see the comparing and contrasting between the way the two sons or the sons respond and then what happens to them? So we're comparing what, what the two sons do and what the one son does. And then we're comparing the blessing to the cursing. I think that's where we're going in this story. It's kind of funneling down to that. So let's see what do Shem and Japheth do. Verse 23, how do they respond? Well, verse 23 says, Then Shem and Japheth took garments, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Do you see any repetition in that? What, what do you kind of get from that? Somebody tell me. What do you get from that? What repetition do you see? And what would the point of it be? Okay, they're walking backwards. They're turning backwards. And then it's so that they do not see. You see how this is being written so that we don't miss the point that they are taking every effort to make sure they do not look on their father's nakedness. And in fact, they're making every effort they can to not look and to make sure that he is covered up. And then what does God do through Noah for these brothers who do this? He blesses them. He blesses them. He, he, God pronounces a blessing over these brothers for walking backwards and covering up their father and not looking and not seeing their father's nakedness. So this leaves us with a question. A question. Fundamentally, why is one of the parties cursed and the other one's blessed? Why, do one, why, do two, why, do, why does Ham get cursed? He saw him and told. And why do, I'm going to get them wrong, so I'm resisting to say them, Shem and Japheth, why do they get blessed? Not seeing and doing what? Covering. Not seeing and covering. So I think one of them gloated over their father's nakedness, spread the word, and the others covered their father's nakedness so that he wouldn't be seen. Nakedness. Naked. You notice the repetition of that. Verse 21, Noah's uncovered. Verse 22, we're told that he is naked. Verse 23, two times, what does it say? Nakedness, right? Nakedness. So we've been going through Genesis together. And we're trying to stay in the context of Genesis. What do we know to be true about nakedness in Genesis? What is the condition of Adam and Eve when they're created? They're naked. And what are they not in their nakedness? Ah, oh, they're not ashamed. And then what happens after Adam and Eve sin and God is walking in the garden towards Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I'm hiding because I am naked and ashamed, afraid. Same word, afraid, ashamed. Hmm. Could there be something going on here with nakedness and shame? that God is trying to tell his people. I think the two brothers acted like God, perhaps. What does God do? He makes garment, right? He kills an animal. He puts a skin over Adam and Eve to cover 
their shame, to cover their nakedness. And here it seems like the brother, Ham, who doesn't, but gossips, is cursed. And the brothers who cover up the shame act like God. What happens to them? They get blessed. Sometimes it's, it's scary being a preacher, a pastor, because God often does things in my life prior to a passage of scripture to give me an illustration for all of you. So a few weeks ago, I shared with you, as we went to the story of Noah and people drowning, how the week before, God sent me to the beach, and I'm there, and there's a father and son drowning, that whole story. Well, this week, you're supposed to laugh at that point. <laughs> this week, I had to go to the doctor. Yeah, and for issues I don't want to go into the details of, but let's just say that part of my exam had to be that exam that men get when they're over 50, <laughs> with the glove snapping. So I go to my doctor, it's a group of doctors, and so I get there and they tell me who I'm going to see, this specialist surgeon person, and I go, and I get in the room, and the nurse comes and does all the vitals and asks all the questions, I'm like, oh, this is great, and then I sit down and I wait for the doctor, whom I've never met before. In my mind, I'm assuming, due to the type of exam that I'm going to be getting, that a man will walk through the door. You already know what's happening. A woman surgeon doctor walks through the room, to the end of the room which was very surprising in that moment for me. Very smart, very kind, very knowledgeable, very gentle, but it's a woman! <laughs> I don't want a woman poking around my backside, okay? I just don't want that. But here's what they did, and I kid you not, this is 100% truth. The doctor gets a nurse to come help, who of course has to be another girl in her 20s, and they hold up a sheet. Each of them holds an end of the sheet. And they stand behind me, so I can drop my drawers. And I just try to, you know, I want to see what's going on behind me a little bit. And best I could tell, and I'm 99% I'm sure I wouldn't tell the story this way, their back is to me. So they're looking the other way, and they're holding up a sheet on either side. And then as soon as I lie down, drawers down, they cover me up. They walk backwards, and they cover me up with the sheet. And I'm like, come on, God, seriously? Would you do this just for this purpose? What's going to happen when we get to Joseph being put in the well? What's going to happen in chapter 17 where everyone's getting circumcised? <laughs> but do you understand what the nurse was doing with the doctor? They were covering the nakedness of my shame. It's embarrassing. It was shameful. But what were they doing? They were covering up my shame. And I think that's what's happening here. I think Japheth and Shem are covering up their father's shame, and so they are blessed, whereas Ham exploits his father's nakedness and ends up being cursed. So I want to ask you a question this morning, and then I'm going to try to prove to you why I think this is true. And the question is this, what do you do when shameful things happen to other people? When someone does something shameful, whether it's sinfully shameful or not sinfully shameful, earned shame or honor and shame, if there's such a thing, how do you respond? Do you gloat over it? Do you think of it about it over and over again and maybe internally celebrate it? Do you attempt to increase their shame by sharing with others what you've seen? Husbands, wives, what do you do when your spouse is dealing at a very deep heart level shame 
that they're experiencing in their life. Shame over things they said or did. Or shame over things they wish they hadn't done or hadn't said. Parents, what do we do when we see our children dealing with shame? You know, shame can come out in different ways. You can feel ashamed and blame other people. Kids often do that. Or by hiding. How many times has a kid done something wrong and then you find them hiding somewhere because they're ashamed? Or maybe they lie. So I think the key for us here is to realize that at times maybe our kids behave a certain way and that's just the fruit, but there's a deeper root issue going on and perhaps their deeper root issue is shame. So shame's a powerful thing and it's hard to define, isn't it? Like, I know what it is. It's kind of like guilt and embarrassment put together in my heart. It's a feeling that I struggle with when I've done something I know I shouldn't, done, shouldn't have done. And so I did what any one of you would have done, I went to God's word to find out what else does God say about shame? And is there something in scripture that connects shame to our Genesis passage? Is there something that might be a connector? Am I on to something or am I out to lunch? So, I start reading through the Bible like you would have done, and I come to this passage. Ah, hope I didn't just do something wrong. I probably did. Oh boy. Okay, hold on. There we go. So I come to this passage in Revelation. And I want you to tell me if you see connections here between nakedness and shame in something... Sorry. In some way... Damn it. In some way that would be helpful. So this is Jesus speaking to... God speaking to the church in Laodicea. And many of you, if you've been around church a while, you know these verses. This is what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Scary words. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom i love i reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and eat with him and he with me this is really good news and i want to show you the good news that is in this passage. I want you to notice a few things. The first is this. In verse 17, we see the person saying, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And then there's this little phrase, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So you don't know it. You're blind to your own situation. So what does Jesus do? He says, I counsel you to buy from me 
gold refined by fire, so you may be rich and white garments. I should have highlighted. Where is those white garments? White garments. So you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, so people he loves, what does he do? He reproves them and he disciplines them. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and we see him knocking. If anyone hears my voice, he says, I will come in and I'll eat with him. So I'm going to walk you through just very briefly. This is extremely powerful and crazy applicable to every one of our lives. It seems here that what Jesus does when we do not realize that we are naked, see where I'm going? We don't realize that we're naked. What does he do? Well, he reproves and he disciplines and he knocks what mechanism does God use in order to get our attention so that we'll realize, because we're not realizing, so that we will realize that we are naked and pitiable and poor and blind? Well, it seems that the motive for us here is that we want something to happen. We want to get rid of what? It's the only word in here that I can think of that resonates with the practical situation I'm in. Shame. So it seems that in order to get you to realize that you are naked, God is going to use shame as a form of discipline and reproof so you will hear him knocking. This is life-changing. This is parent-changing. Because this gives reason for shame. Why is shame in your life? Why does shame function in the hearts of people, Christians and non-Christians? This passage tells us clearly, I think, what shame is supposed to do in our lives. It has a God-given purpose. God gives you the thoughts and emotions of shame, and shame is meant to function here, I think, in several ways. One, shame is God's mechanism, so you will feel your need to cover up. He wants you to know you're naked. Shame tells me something is wrong. I'm ignorant. I'm not realizing something. Shame is God's or Jesus' discipline and his reproving me. And shame also, I think, is him knocking. So if this is right and this is true, then that means when you start to feel shame, it's really... Hello? Hello? That's what shame is supposed to produce in us. I need to be covered. Shame makes you go, I'm naked. I don't like this. This is bad. I don't feel comfortable. I want to hide. I don't want to tell people. I want to isolate. Or I'm going to lie. Or I'm going to get angry. I'm going to do something just so the shame will go away. Where the whole time, shame, according to this, is Jesus knocking on your heart, trying to get your attention so you'll realize, yes, I am naked. This is his discipline. And he does that so that we will come to him for two things. Do you see it in the text? He's knocking. It's an invitation. He's using the emotion of shame so that he can give us two things. The first is this, white garments. 
to clothe the shame of your nakedness. So when you feel shame, we need to recognize this is Jesus trying to get my attention. Shame is there to help me see that I'm naked. If there was no shame, you would go, whatever, whatever. I did it, yeah, but whatever. You wouldn't care. Shame is the knocking on your heart going, you should care. This is Jesus knocking. I want to get your attention because you don't realize that you're naked. So shame is the, woohoo, you're naked, wake up, pay attention. So that you can buy white garments to clothe the shame of your nakedness. Now, does any of that sound familiar for those of you who have been in Christ Church for a while? <laughs> I mean, this is justification. So, shame on all of you. If you're a member of Christ Church and you don't know this, that justification means two things. In order for you to be justified before God, two things must happen. The first is, you must be, you got to be forgiven. All of the things you have done wrong need to be forgiven. All the things you should have done that you didn't do need to be forgiven. All the things you did do that you shouldn't have done need to be forgiven. And so in the gospel, you are forgiven for all of those things, which then makes you stand morally neutral before God. You have nothing good, so God will accept you. All the bad is gone, but you don't have the good. So what does he do? He clothes you in his righteousness. We get that, right? We need to get that. I'm not going to do the whole thing this morning because some people would kill me and my family for doing this too often. <laughs> but you know the story. We were naked, covered in sin. And what does Jesus do? He lives the perfect life. He does everything that God tells him to do perfectly, and he doesn't do all the things he's not supposed to do perfectly so that he can then forgive you and clothe you in his righteousness this is an invitation for you to come to Jesus when you feel shameful and to say, I need clothing. Lying doesn't get me the clothing I want. Blaming others isn't getting me the clothing I want. Hiding is not getting me the clothing I want. I still feel ashamed. So what does Jesus do? He says, well, come. He's knocking. Come to me and I'll clothe you in my righteousness and I'll cover your nakedness. That's what he's doing. But he doesn't stop there. you got to love how it finishes. He didn't say, okay, you're clean, see you later. You're clothed, have a good day. What does he do? He keeps knocking so that you can do what? You can take your brand new clothing and enjoy eating with him. And you notice the repetition? You eat with him and he eats with you. So you're not just sitting there watching him eat. And he's not sitting there watching you eat. Have you ever been in that situation? It's not fun. I'm chowing down there because I already ate. I'm like, yeah, but I can't enjoy this. Eat something. <laughs> and we know in Scripture, and you know from your own lives, that eating is, is symbolic of communion and friendship and enjoyment and relationships. That's why we invite people over to eat. It's God's design that when we sit down and eat a meal together, we enjoy relating to one another in different ways. That's how God created food. And so he invites us in. So he covers our shame, forgives us our sins, and then he says, come on, let's hang out together. Let's get together. Let's enjoy relationship with one another. So what do you do when you feel shame? What should you do now in light of this when you feel shame? Realize God gave us the thoughts and emotions that go with shame to function in a specific way. 
that we'd hear and feel the shame in our heart and recognize it as Jesus knocking, inviting you to come to him so that you can be clothed and enjoy a meal with him. What do you do when your spouse struggles with shame? Condemned, hiding, filled with guilt. Let me suggest to you this morning that you help them cover their shame by letting it function in their hearts the way that God intended it to function. Be like Shem and Japheth and help them cover their sin with Christ. Speak Christ to them. Gently remind them any shame you're feeling right now is an invitation from Jesus. He's knocking because he wants you to come to him and get fresh clothes and a good meal. Parents, what do we do when our kids feel shame? And I don't know a kid on the earth that hasn't felt shame at some point. As I raise kids and talk to parents, shame is huge. It disguises itself as anger and blaming and lying often. But at the root, what they are is they're ashamed and they're trying to figure out, what do I do with the shame that I'm feeling over what I've done? Let me suggest that you let shame function in their little hearts the way God intended it to function. Be like Shem and Japheth and help them cover up their sin by imaging God and leading them to Jesus and speaking Jesus to them by letting them know that that shame you're feeling is Jesus knocking. And he's saying, come on in. Get fresh clothing that you'll never have on your own and enjoy fellowship with me at a great banquet together. I think this story in Genesis is about shame and about what happens when we cover up someone's shame and the blessings that come and maybe not the cursings if we exploit someone's shame but maybe just what God thinks about it when we exploit someone's shame. This is God's perspective, I think, of shame and what we do with it. This is life-changing. For me, this is life-changing. I, I see shame differently this week. I feel shame differently this week. Because I feel shame all the time. Very aware of things I wish I'd done and didn't do and missed opportunities and not using my time always perfectly like I wish I could and not getting things done that, just all the time. This is life-changing to embrace that shame is meant to function in my life, to be Christ knocking so that I will come to him. So I think this story exists to teach us God's people, his perspective of shame as they are about to spread out all over the earth. Now, this is where the connection gets tricky for me. Because if that's what the story is really about, how does that relate to the spreading out all over the earth? Is God just trying to prepare people for, you're going to experience a lot of shame as you spread out, so here's how to deal with it? Maybe. But there's another thread and I know this doesn't answer all of your questions, but I think the other thread is this. Who are going to be one of Israel's greatest arch enemies throughout the Old Testament? The Philistines and who else? The Canaanites. And so as we're launching out now into the spreading out of all the earth, it seems like this passage exists so that we know why the heck the Canaanites are in the middle of so much of the mess. And if we're accurate in understanding that Moses is giving the people Genesis as they're about to enter the promised land of Canaan and they're reading this they're going oh that's why we're going in here that's why they've become our enemy 
They've been cursed. And, and here's why they've been cursed. Because shame was dealt with in a way that it should not have been dealt with. I invite you this week to think about that more. The connections that are there. I think there's connections all over. Some of them are harder to see than others, but they're there. But I think primarily for this week, I would love for us as a church just to dwell on shame. And the role it's meant to function in our lives and to help one another deal with shame. And to experience the freedom and the grace that we can of being covered by the righteousness of Christ and enjoy fellowship with him. May shame produce in us the opposite of what it's produced maybe in us in the past. Instead of making us hide from Jesus, may we hear it as him knocking because he wants us to come towards him. And may we move towards him more and more often and may we help our spouses and our friends and our kids do the same. And that is what I think the story of Noah and his drunken tent is all about. <laughs> but you need to be the judge. I invite you to read it. Lots of opinions out there. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. And we are people with, I'm a, just a weak-minded man. And wanting to faithfully exegete your scripture and not make it say stuff I want it to say. And that's not easy for any of us to do. We we, we stumble over your word sometimes. We want to see what you're telling us, and we, we can miss it. And sometimes it's because we're just weak humans. Other times it's because we're proud, and who knows all the reasons. But Lord, we're grateful that your spirit works in our lives. Thank you, spirit, that you can help us. And I, I pray that you would use uh, this time of just equipping even this morning to help us to be more faithful to knowing what you're really telling us in your word when we read it. And we wouldn't try to make it say things it wasn't meant to say. We would try to impart things on people that it never was meant to impart. And instead, Lord, may we, may we grow as a church and as families and individuals at understanding how to read your word and, and get out of it what, what you want to tell us about you and us, God, about this relationship we have with you. And Lord Jesus, I pray specifically this morning for us to process the emotions and feelings and thoughts of shame differently from this day on than we ever have before, Lord. Maybe we already, maybe some of this room already have been processing it this way. But Lord, for those of us who haven't, I pray, God, that we would recognize that when we feel shameful and want to hide or lie or do whatever we can to escape the shame, I pray that we would quickly recognize that that's you knocking. That's you and you want our attention. You want us to come and be freshly clothed of our naked shame. And then you want to Enjoy just hanging out with us, just being with us, just resting with us. God, I, I pray especially for any of my friends in this room who have really struggled with shame over the years. God, maybe there's something in their past, something they've said or done or didn't do that have them just crushed under shame. I pray you set them free. Jesus, set them free right now. I ask that they would reinterpret the shame they feel as you knocking so that they can come to you and enjoy fresh white covering and they can enjoy fellowship with you a meal with you resting with you relaxing with you as their savior and so jesus comfort and set free any here this morning who've been gripped with shame make them alive in your righteousness i pray in Jesus' name, amen.